Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of 168,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of the production and broadcasting costs of The Modern Architect. KZSU, Stanford University's FM radio station broadcasting across the Bay Area on 90.1 FM and across the world at KZSU. From the campus of Stanford University, this is the Modern Architect radio show and podcast featuring one-on-one interviews with renowned and cutting-edge architects, influencers, and sustainability leaders. The show and podcast will inform, educate, and illuminate the transformation, joy, and inspiration architecture brings to our cities, communities, and lives. Hosted by architecture aficionado and principal of Accurate, Tom Diaro. Thank you, Darlene. For our guest today, please welcome Rosa Shang, fellow of the American Institute of Architects, lead AP, architect, thought leader, principal, and director of equity, diversity, and inclusion at Smith Group JGR, and serves as the AIA San Francisco president 2018 from the aesthetically minimal, highly technical development of glass structures for Apple's original high-profile retail stores to the innovative and sustainable LEED NC Gold Certified Lori Loki Graduate School of Business at Mills College in Oakland, California. She is currently working on innovative and sustainable projects for the University of California, Davis. For more information, feel free to visit www.aisf.site-ym.com. That's www.aisf.site. Dash ym.com. Hello, Rosa. We're honored and excited to have you on the Modern Architect Radio Show today. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, Rosa, we, we sought you out for a while. Thank you for finally make, making us uh, available on your calendar. Rosa, I'd like to start with something um, early inspirations. If you can recall back as far as you can as to how you, not, not just as an architect, but how you are including people in the community and making everyone know that, you know, what their responsibilities are and what your responsibilities are and to really cohesively work together. When did that kind of start, if you, if you don't mind sharing with us, as early as you can recall? Sure. I think the grounding of that story starts with growing up in suburban New Jersey, right? So talk about architectural inspiration, strip malls and track homes, anything. But that's what I thought architecture was until I was fortunate enough to take a trip sponsored by my eldest aunt, uh, who was an IBM programmer. And she was the first role model for me in terms of a woman who had a career and in tech, right, at that time programming was at its forefront and she was uh, instrumental for contributing um, converting information about the abacus into programming so it was kind of fascinating she traveled back and forth to china and so on one of her work trips she she took my brother and i as a summer trip to visit my grandparents who are still living there in beijing and my grandfather and my aunt toured us around um the great 
monuments, right? Yeah. So the Great Wall, the Forbidden City, um, even the little alleyways and intimate courtyards called Hutong of the time where the networks where uh, people lived and socialized. And that was architecture, right? That was that aha moment of, oh my God, where I've been living, it wasn't really architecture. This is architecture. <laughs> And what my grandfather said to me was that architecture goes beyond the actual physical form, the building. It's about the people and that it's meant to capture as a time capsule, the civilization, the culture of that time beyond any person's individual lifetime. Wow. Right. Oh, so yes. Definitely. Wow. That I translate now yeah. to profound impact. At that time, I didn't know what it was called, but I've kind of honed it to be profound impact. So how could I, as an architect... I wanted to have profound impact. And as an architect, it seemed like, aha, I could do that. So I went about telling everybody I was going to be an architect at the right old age <laughs> of 11. Really? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's outstanding. <laughs> yeah, I was so really excited. Is. At 11 years yes. old. Yes. And oh, you were called. Everybody laughed at me and said, you no. couldn't possibly understand what architecture is. And you're too young. Oh. And don't you know they work really long hours and they don't get paid that much? And the icing on the cake was one of my uncles saying, you're going to get married and have kids anyway. So what's the point? Why are you doing all, why would you do all that? So that got me fired up. I was really indignant. You know, I was, I was very I, yeah. stubborn as a child. And <laughs> thank goodness. It was like this poem, um, Shel Silverstein from where the sidewalk ends called yeah. Melinda May about this little girl who claims she's going to eat this giant whale. Yeah. Share with us. Uh, yeah. And the anecdote is that I claimed I was going to eat this whale. I was going to be an architect, right? And yeah. so everybody laughed at this little girl and said, there's no way you could do it. Whale's too big. You're too small. But she was determined and indignant. And she solved that problem by little bites. Um, it yeah. took her 89 years <laughs> to accomplish her task, mm -hmm. gross as it might sound as this <laughs> allegory. But she did it. The lesson learned for me was that I didn't want it to be 89 years before I did anything. So I asked for help. I asked for mentors of the uh, high school faculty. There was a program for going to architecture firms and getting uh, an experience of what architecture was. That didn't sway me. Oh, and I kept going and I applied to architecture schools. I had the support of my parents and kept going, right? And I'm even so, though it was sure. a difficult journey, it was long hours and it was low pay to begin with. But that persistence of knowing that it would make a profound impact at some point in my life kept me going. And that is at 11 years old. 11. And a little, a little, little Melinda May. Right? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> little you definitely are. So you, get, have you, you have your own story that you're, you're in the middle of writing your own story right now. Yes. And yeah. that story kept going, right? So I had an early success trajectory. I worked at a couple of different firms and again, didn't feel that at, during a recession, 94, and didn't feel that um, profound impact right away. I was doing renderings and bathroom details and designing malls. I went back to Did malls. Did you really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> because it was a recession and you just took what you could get. Um, so there was a questioning of, well, is this really what I set out to do? And maybe my uncle was right, but no, he's not going to be right yeah. or determined. So luckily for me, the timing worked out where a friend of mine... Um, from college, Kruti Majmandar, she said that there was this job at Bolo and Swinsky Jackson. Why don't you come out to Pittsburgh and interview? We're doing some work out in California for this company called Pixar Animation Studios. Nobody no, had was ever it really heard. like that yeah. for this company, Pixar? Yeah, <laughs> who had just formed at that time, right? And nobody knew what they were doing or what it was. Yeah. <laughs> or if they would be big or not, you know, and 
it was their headquarters in Emeryville. Mm-hmm. And that was the carrot that got me to interview. And I ended up working on that project. And the interesting thing is that we had developed a great relationship with the client. They were flying us back and forth for these project meetings. Uh, got to present to Steve Jobs, which was amazing. But the project wasn't developing fast enough. And they asked us, "What? let's brainstorm. What can we do to you know, speed this mm-hmm. along, uh, finish on time? And they took us out to dinner. We had some drinks. And <laughs> I got brazen and said, you can move us out to California. Wouldn't that be great? And did you really? I did. It wasn't just the alcohol. You really felt that. Obviously. I felt that. That was the okay. answer. We needed to be closer to the user groups and the client so that we could process and make decisions and really understand where they were working. Did that go off that like just... Well, uh, it was laughed at at that moment, but then three months later, they moved us out and that started the California office. So they uh, literally laughed at it? Like, oh, that sounds a little... Oh, everybody laughed. The nervous laugh. Like, oh, that's so silly. Why would you you say that? Rosa, that's great. So it was a lesson learned. Uh, Don't be afraid to offer the crazy solution or ask the stupid question. We're often... I'm editing ourselves and not, you know, bringing things up, right? Yeah. Rosa, where, so, I'm going to go back again if you don't mind. But where do you, you shared with us, but how do you get that sort of um, fearlessness? Because I think it's a fearlessness. Maybe I'm stretching it a bit, but as a fearlessness to you that I, I noticed that a lot of people need. It's like a light and a fearlessness. Can I tell you a secret? Yeah, share with us. It's, it's going to be, could be with millions of people here in the secret. by though. fear. Originally fueled by fear. It's constantly fueled by fear, but then the fear and then turning it into fuel. So I have a new slogan, which is uh, fail fast, fail often. Uh, Let failure be your fuel, not your fear. Let Let failure be your fuel, not your fear. Oh, oh, so this is going to be a great show. You can fail in the (laughs) moment, but not be a failure for life. So that's my mantra when I face the anxiety and the fear of failing and that imposter syndrome. A lot of people talk about it and go through it like, uh, you know, some imposter where you feel like you don't belong to. Right. Where I I feel like I've achieved a lot, but maybe this doesn't belong to me. Maybe I don't deserve this recognition. Maybe it isn't all that. Yes. You know, so and a lot of people talk about that, but it is a thing and it's real. Yeah, and so I'm being very authentic and candid with you. <laughs> yeah, no, I, we're, we we love it. Our audience is definitely going to love this because uh, I think it's a light. Uh, I mean, I'm I'm looking at at you, and yeah, I'm patting you on the back, but I'm also being real about it. Is I think you're being a light for the entire architect industry. I know we're in San Francisco, and the, you know the whole world still exists, but there's a, a light that you're shining on a lot of issues, setbacks, and a lot of problems that are holding us back from advancing yes can you share with us some of well i think currently if we look at the landscape it's very daunting we're looking at polarization of people and politics of you must take a stance one way or the other very binary and we're not allowing for the truth of who we are as humanity was which is a complex intersection of places and people and identities and we're not binary you know, and yeah. in order to understand things, people chunk and we digest things as binary things. Are you this or that, this or that? But to really be authentic and true to ourselves, we're not this or that. We're a lot of different things. And I think that fuels a lot of the fear that's going around right now. There's a lot of fear about 
the fact that AI might take over, you know, human labor and our jobs, the fear that we can't afford to live in places and cities that we thrive in, the fear that whatever unknown is going to take us over and collapse us, right? So, and I don't want to go into specifics because we could, that's another show altogether, but I think overcoming those fears in, in architecture specifically, it's the fear that we are not relevant anymore. Um, and to change that, we have to become relevant and we have to figure out how we deserve that value and relevancy. And I think that's part of the work that I'm doing with our group, Equity by Design, is one, understanding what is it that's keeping people from choosing architecture as a career or staying in architecture as a career. Some are anecdotal and we know those. Mm-hmm. But a deeper dive with the survey work that we've been doing, the most recent one um, this year, garnering nearly almost 15,000 people, a little under that, so 14,000 plus. But a lot of people in the architecture profession want to know why we are struggling to thrive and doing what we love and having profound impact. Yes. Right? Yeah, absolutely. There's... um I'll bring up a topic and, and names, and I, I don't know if they'll mind if they do. No, they, they'll, they won't mind. Is um, about a little over a year ago, I was discussing with uh, I don't know if you, Michelle Ney. Yes. And and I said this is before our show. I said, you know, I really think that uh, mayors of cities need to be have a be architects. And uh, <laughs> she just looked at me stunned, and I thought, oh my gosh, we haven't even started the show yet, and I said something offensive. But she said, no. I, I totally, you know, I agree with you. It, it needs to occur. And I said, yes. and, I, and I went on to my why of the reason is because they see the total picture. There's a 3D spectrum in their mind. They understand the communities. They look at things as, as you know, sustainable. Just, just, it's just built into them. So I think every mayor of a city ought to be, if they're not uh, already an architect, they need to have that bent to them or have uh, someone right next to them. And I think uh, Garcetti in Los Angeles actually has a, he'll be on the show soon. Um, Christopher Hawthorne, who's an architectural critic yes. for the LA Times, is going to be the what they now call CDO or Chief Design Officer. And so, architects, I say, they need to be relative. And I know, and I actually say my my mantra was: architects need to be mandatory. Yes, and people need to understand the value they bring and their expertise is at least equal to a physician or an MD or an attorney, if not in some ways maybe greater. And what I mean by the greater is because the requirements for building the built environment grow almost daily. It's, it's not true. like it's finite and then you just have to understand it. It grows daily. So they're responsible for so much that you, you can't even uh, almost quantify. So obviously, you know, we have the show, The Modern Architect, but I just feel like the value is so much, so important that they ought to be in a position of mayorship or citizenship. Absolutely. And, and so I, I, again, that's, I feel that, you know, very, very much with my heart. I'm going on too much. So here, I'll just go to station break. You're listening to The Modern Architect, KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. Comprehensive information on Bay Area classical music concerts can be found at the San Francisco Classical Voice website, sfcv.com. For daily, weekly, or monthly information on classical music concerts throughout the Bay Area, simply visit sfcv.org. We're talking today with Rosa Shang, fellow of the AIA, president of AIA San Francisco, and principal at Smith Group JGR in San Francisco. For more information, you can visit www.aiasf.site-ym.com. That's www.aiasf.site-ym.com. Rosa, what's going on about why 
it's so important for cities to have an architect as the f- uh, focal point beacon for the entire community, regardless of political affiliation. Yes. And it sounds like you, you share that as well. What is What may be holding that probability or eventuality back today in 2018? Well, I think there's old models of what architects do, and a lot of people that aren't in the profession uh, don't know what architects do, right? So part of that is that we've been relegated to a limited role with just the design and execution of a building or a series of buildings. But when we think about the urban environment and the interaction of buildings, it has to do with people. It goes back to the people and how we use buildings and not only the buildings, but in concert, the whole urban scale of how buildings work together, the housing near the workplace, the transportation systems, the resources, Um, whether or not people are living in a food desert, whether or not they're getting to a hospital or schools, you know, school systems that are viable for that community. And the layer on top of that is equity, diversity, inclusion, where social justice plays a part. Are we preventing in our design of cities, general people having access to these resources? You know, what are the barriers that we're creating unintentionally by not thinking about these things? What barriers are you seeing? Um, Again, it's the housing very relevant in the Bay Area. We're because we didn't want to have a moderated um, level of construction over the years, we wanted to keep it this quaint city that we knew it to be. We are behind in building housing, right? Affordable housing. And with the tech boom, we know these cycles, boom or bust, they come and go. But the lack of affordable housing is pushing the people that are in the general working class out to the peripheries. So they're spending more time commuting in and out of the cities, less time, you know, with their families or working, that work-life mm-hmm. challenge becomes ominous and a huge mental health and wellness point for a lot of families that are just struggling yes. to get by. And then the pay result of that is that, again, the haves and have-nots is ever-increasing. What we value, the day-to-day workers, is not viable with the prevention of affordable housing. They just, they're spending more on housing and less on the things that they need to resources. Yeah. And I think... We have a valuable role to play in that, in recognizing and being creative on how we utilize the resources that we have. And then also, I forgot to mention, the people that build the housing, ironically, are the ones that are priced out of the housing. So construction workers, right? The trades. Those are the the blue collar workers. Those are the people that are doing the work and they can't get here. So therefore, they go to other affordable places Therefore, driving up the cost of construction, right? So it's this never-ending bad cycle that we're in. Yeah. So we need policies, civic policies to help urban planning, et cetera, to help balance the amount of housing that we construct. We're, We're trying to catch up. And then also with technology booming and the disruptors, we're dealing with Airbnb and Uber and all these other things, creating housing shortages because they're converted into these short-term hotels, if you will, you yeah. know, so that's not helping. Yeah. yeah. So you, you really care about these issues. I do. I do. <laughs> yeah. Does, so it you, Does it show? Does it show? Yes. So, um, you yes. care about it, but you're also doing much to address it. Yes. Share with well, us how you... Directly and indirectly. So okay. in my direct work at, in the practice, I am involved in workplace and higher education as my immediate touch points of clients I serve. So campuses, 
We know that the demographic shift is happening where we have more diverse students, but we also will have more diverse populations. So in 2045, the U.S. Census tells us that the quote-unquote underrepresented minority population in the U.S. will become the majority population. So a lot of people are fearful of that, but that's an opportunity for us to leverage that in economic prosperity. If we can tap the potential of this new working class of first-gen low-income graduates to be tech workers, to have these viable, significant jobs, that powers the economy, you know, better everything, right? Yes. But if we aren't careful, also we're slowing down in population growth. Um, A lot of the, you know, the next gen, if you will, is coming from either international students, whether it's India or China, or these diverse first generation students. So colleges are seeing a need to answer the question of diversity inclusion. And we're, you know, proposing equitable practices, equitable practices, which is not to be confused with equality, meaning that we identify the barriers to success. We create solutions that minimize those barriers to success. And then the outcome is success feeds back into people giving back, right? Yeah. So it's, it's, if we go back even to the beginning, you're in essence, like your experience, your personal experience, when you were younger, you've experienced that, unfortunately, or, but fortunately, you definitely use that f- as fuel. It sounds like in some ways you're bringing that to the same, the first generation, next generation. So they, yes. what you went through, you know, Hey, there's a way out of this and yes. a great way out of this. And oh, absolutely. Here's how we kind of onboard you to this pro- program in my well it's a it's okay. a empathy direct empathy of being a first generation immigrant with my parents seeing them and their struggles they were college educated but when they came to the states they were they became blue collar workers right so they went through that whole thing again of providing for us and my dad was laid off from his job at the point that I was uh, going to architecture school so I, I felt those immediate crisis points that I know a lot of students are yeah. going through. At a very gut real level. Huh? Yes. So yeah. at a physical f- level of architecture, how can the architecture solve these prolific social issues? And the answer is yes, it can. Absolutely. Yes. We spent yeah. 98% of our time in buildings. They influence an incredible amount of our lives from our productivity to our social mental health, you know, our social networks, etc. Is there... A lot of these first-gen students are now commuter students, and they're not living on campus or they can't afford to live on campus or near campus. What are the provisions that the university is providing for these students? Um, Stanford could even think about this. Is there a third place? Is there ample place, study space, living room space, a hub that they can go go to as a resource? Can they get mentored? Can they... Uh, feel welcome and included and not outpriced because they are the perceived have nots, but celebrated for their potential. Right. And even in the affordable housing, how do you create units that do meet the pro forma that the university is required to meet? Can we rethink the traditional idea of apartment or dormitory to create more, more efficient units with maybe Murphy beds or things that are, you know, fold away. We see in Asia already. Yes. Why couldn't we try to prototype and have a competition to adapt that model for the next generation of housing that allows for, you know, lower cost, but also more social space, like aggregate the living room space, et cetera, et cetera. So design can have this profound impact on 
these social challenges. Yes. What are some of the, you you shared with us some of the examples that could be, but what are some examples that you've seen that are like, aha, let's model this and let's, yes, let's let's study this further. Well, I think I touched upon it, but if we go to workplace, this ideal that everybody, this current idea that everybody has to have a seat and they have to have their butt in the seat is this arcane idea. Um, it doesn't work for the worker because there's a guilt of not physically being there because they might have multiple obligations. Mm-hmm. There is the pro forma of if I have to provide that physical space, let's call it the minimum, you know, 64 square feet per person, which is terribly awful. But you have to have that allocation as you grow. Where And then studies have shown that most of the time up to 60, 65% of is occupied at any given point, 40% is actually vacant because people are, really? are at other job yeah. sites or, you know, their meetings at other places. They're just not, or they're, you know, at their family event or whatever, they're just not there. So this idea of agile workplace and the evolution of that is something that we're talking about and studying and implementing with our clients and how you, and there's a freedom of choice in that, right? Mm-hmm. So where you work, how productive you work, what groups you need to work with that changes over the course of a day or months. Why are you in a fixed place, et cetera? And we have technology to help us create spaces that are more agile and friendly and allow for the right kind of work to happen. So collaboration spaces dedicated to more of the group think and ideation, and then the heads down spaces, the quiet spaces, library type insular that you need heads down time don't bother me time mm-hmm. <laughs> right yeah. and then if people need to find you there's a lot of fears in this change management of well, yeah, going yeah. to agile nobody yeah. will know where i am <laughs> well it's like yeah. well you have a phone right and yeah. you know usually nowadays people kind of know where you are it's just coming up with the systems that help people encourage people to be flexible and in that not having to provide a physical space 24 7 for that person you free up the real estate to be used more effectively, right? Oh, Rosa, this is great. <laughs> so you're taking... And it's not just me. I'm not the originator of that, but I, know, I am but the you, promoter of these ideas that help us as a society, right, as a whole. You, you're going from <laughs> the, the mind to the experience and actually working to change the behavior. The behavior, that's yeah. right. Yeah, share with us a bit about, and, you know, what the behavior outlook, you know, the outcome And it's about talent retention too, right? So if we think about the struggles that people go through, burnout versus engagement, whether they feel lonely at work or connected or isolated, that can all be changed by the physical space. Uh, There's a lot of studies emerging now. The irony of social media and how we're so connected is that a lot of people feel lonely, not only in educational environments, but in workplaces where we spend the majority of our time and we're supposed to be connected to our workers, but there, we lack the deep connections in this jump forward to social media. Mm-hmm. We have lighter, multiple more lighter connections. We feel like we know people, but we're missing out on those deeper connections that truly build empathy and understanding. Right. Very so true. we got to get back to that. How do we get back to that? Yes. And it's in the physical space. Yeah. It's, it, I don't have it as a poem by his name is Victor Chang. I'll give him credit for that. He had said he wrote a nice piece. And I'll be happy to send it to you after you, when, our, when our show is done via email. But he had said that the greatest gift in the world is presence. That's right. It's, it is presence. And it sounds like you're coming from 
a lot of people's general perception is that buildings, there's buildings made and then the, you fill it with the people, but it's from what I'm hearing from you, it's you're coming from the person out. Yes. And then building from the person's own experiences. And persons that normally don't get a voice in the design process. So back to that 98% of the time we spend in buildings, only 2% inversely have direct control over commissions for uh, buildings. Two? 2%. It might be a little bit bigger now, but the people with the pocketbooks, right? The people institutionally with the money make the decisions for the users, the 98% or the 100% of the people, right? Yeah. And we're trying to change that because if you think about it, buildings don't work a lot of the time. They either, at their most mundane, they don't inspire you. At their worst, they harm. So I'll give you a a direct example. I'm not going to beat around the bush. Prisons. Nobody wants to touch the prison conversation. Uh, It's icky. It's awful. It's third rail. So the design of prisons, the actual design of prisons themselves, the fact whether or not we need them is another political discussion, but suic- many more suicides happen at prisons because why we're supposed to be talking about health, safety, and welfare, but they lack access to daylight and views. They lack fresh air. They lack the that deeper connection, empathy building experiences because people are in cells or isolated units. So there was actually a very compelling TED talk um, by a gentleman who had been incarcerated by the name of Jesse Crimes. I know the name Crimes is kind of weird. But he, the most poignant thing that he said to me was, uh, to the audience, was that the most violent thing about the prisons wasn't the other prisoners. It wasn't the corrections officers. It was the walls. Oh. The isolation created by the walls as a damaging permanent mental state, right? of isolation and what that does to the brain. What did that do for you when you heard that? I was ashamed. Even though I'd never designed a prison before, but that lack of our own, as architects, we claim to be there for everyone, but we're truly not there for everyone. So how can we, me personally, I think about, okay, yes, I can't, I don't want to go there. I don't want to do that for my day-to-day work, but how can I affect the conversation? I can bring awareness about where we're not, thinking or talking about just spaces and it goes into the public space as well where we put or you see in civic spaces you see little daggers or things or cleats preventing people from using the public space because we're afraid of homeless people occupying those spaces when in actuality we're weaponizing space we're not allowing people to freely move about and occupy the space and congregate because we're afraid of what might happen to that space. The true problem there is we don't have adequate housing, but so there's the resultant is homelessness. And then the reaction to homelessness is we put these little daggers out so people can't sit somewhere. We don't have furniture so people can be part of the environment. Right. No, it's very (laughs) true. Let's touch back on that. When we return, this is the modern architect at KZSU Stanford 90.1 FM. The California Water Impact Network, or CWIN, is a nonprofit organization that works to ensure equitable and environmentally sensitive use of California's water. Recent goals have included ensuring that adequate water flows through the San Francisco Bay Delta and upstream rivers, stopping poor irrigation practices, which can waste water and poison our land, waterways, and wildlife, and ensuring that water resources are allocated fairly. If you'd like to become a member, donate, or volunteer, go to CWIN.com. 
www.c-win.org. That's c-win.org. We're talking today with Rosa Shang, fellow at the AIA and president of AIA San Francisco and principal at Smith Group JGR in San Francisco. For more information, please feel free to visit www.aiasf.site-ym.com. That's www.aiasf.site-ym.com. Rosa, you know, we're, we go in the walls. Yes. Everyone lives in walls, within walls. Okay. That's right. And you're talking about uh, Jeffrey Crimes and, and his... Oh, Jesse Crimes. Jesse, okay. <laughs> She's an you. artist. Okay, Jesse Crimes. Excellent. So, Jesse Crimes and what really kind of was the was the spiritual death of him in a way. Yes. What were the walls and then how you, you felt ashamed of that as an architect. See how deeply you feel? For the environment, why I say, I've said it many times, why you need to have a seat at the helm of an actual city and not just, I know we have the AIA and it's vital, but how about getting a seat at a prominent position, not for ego purposes, yes, but for the design for a holistic purpose? Absolutely. And okay. I think there's a grassroots movement within AIA and beyond citizen architect. Okay. Oh, nice. Right? So... You might not have the time or capacity or resources to run for public office. You might, and that's great. And, you know, definitely there's a group that encourages that. But what if we start off small? What if we start start off with those small bites? Oh, okay. And I stretched myself and I said, okay, maybe I could do this. Timely enough, there is uh, capital improvements on the local school system, elementary school to high school. And we physically know through the current buildings that are in the city um, serving our youth that they're inadequate. And the lesson learned was, well, was anybody involved in the process that was an architect? And currently there wasn't an architect on the board of education or the building committee. So a group of us concerned parents that happened to be architects and engineers volunteered to be an ad hoc committee. So um, an integrated design committee to advise and sit in meetings and go through the design build process Mm -hmm from selection all the way through the different design critiques about the space to remind them and be mindful of the things that we see as important, whether it's sustainability, whether it's hearing the voices of the students and what they need, et cetera, down to the materials and the durability of those over time. And it's been an amazing experience, but it was kind of a dare to myself to say, well, I'm too busy. Why would I have time to do this? But what it did was it started this awareness within our town of, wow, we have parents that are architects as resources that could help us, right? And that's that little you know, light there, aha moment that each of us as architects, that are architects or no architects can access that as a resource, right? Without having to hire a professional architect, not saying that we give away free services because we value architecture in the, in the drawing and the execution, Yes, that should be done by a professional, but that critique or that advising um, can be done on a volunteer level and also provide people awareness and education about the importance and necessity of architecture's role. Yeah, it also sounds like it's uh, addressing the biggest challenges that impact architects and the built environment at the same place. Share with us how you you see how it uh, seamlessly segues into that awareness. Um, As we said before, I think a big problem architects feel is the lack of relevance or that nobody knows our value or they're seeing us as a hourly service thing versus a professional larger impact thing. So 
part of that is how do we better communicate our value beyond you know just getting involved in our communities and mm-hmm. that has to do with engagement and education so not only future architects promoting knowledge at an early age exposure to architecture as part of our uh, curriculum you know mm-hmm. there's the lack of that even though we spend 98% of our time in buildings there's no architectural education built into core curriculums public education so there's a supplement of a lot of AIAs help support this yeah. extra supplement education, which helps build that understanding of value system. And not everybody will become an architect professionally, sure. but that advocacy of people knowing and being intuitive to talk about their environments and knowing that having natural light and fresh air and views is actually good for them <laughs> and having quiet rooms that don't echo is actually produces less stress and is related to neuroscience and the longevity and health that we things that we take for granted are buried in the design and outcomes right yeah and how we socialize and even how we perceive others so you know people talk about well what gender and spaces what what does that mean and why is there a discussion about you know architecture promoting certain biases, right? How we perceive others. I love that. I never would have thought of that. Yes. So the uh, most recent aha moment, I used current events to kind of prove my theory, right? Is the Starbucks incident that happened in Philadelphia with two African-American gentlemen who were meeting a colleague to talk about a business opportunity. The irony is that one of them had actually been a patron of that Starbucks since he was a youth at 15. The day he decides not to buy a coffee... He gets looked at or perceived as not belonging in this. Somebody wrote it up as, you know, traditionally white privileged space and called out as suspicious. Right. And then subsequently gets arrested for not buying a coffee Mm -hmm. and wanting to use the restroom and not leaving when asked to leave. So it begs the bigger question. Are spaces designed or or even urban environments designed where a, a segregation is expected? So when we see somebody that looks like they don't belong in that neighborhood that creates this whole yeah that's part of the in it's within effect. in the design though it's in, in a the weird design way. i mean it's, it's so subtle but it's there it is there so how do you shift from that i mean i don't know if you can you obviously <laughs> do we have yeah no. No. <laughs> but, no. Do we have a year? <laughs> no. Yeah, um, we have many it's a shows. Slow, there's a cultural shift okay. that is the glacial iceberg. It's the How about whale. design affecting cultures? But Culture. design... Okay. So there's a bigger question or theory um, that I'm trying to integrate into design practice called intercultural intelligence. Intercultural intelligence. There's okay. talk about... There's an evolution of that conversation from cultural... You might have heard of cultural competency. Yes. But that next level iteration is intercultural intelligence. Okay. So there's a spectrum or a continuum, if if you will, of not acknowledging that there is cultural difference or denial that there of other cultures, that you don't even see other cultures as being relevant through acceptance that there are other cultures, but yours is the most important to minimalizing and saying, well, what's the difference anyway? We're all the same. We're people, right? Even though you recognize that there is difference, that you don't see it on a day-to-day basis, how those micro biases are affecting other people and creating barriers for them. So it's that privilege conversation, bias privilege. And then being um, advanced enough to recognize, okay, I acknowledge and 
know that there's something wrong? How do I advocate for those people that mm-hmm. have barriers? And then at the highest level is integration. It's like, how do I... How do you have that change in behavior? Change the behavior, but yeah. also elevate the people that are doing the work to change the behavior. So amplify. amplify okay. And that's yeah. what I'm trying to do. But not everybody is always constantly at one or the other. It's yeah. the spectrum, right? So at times I check myself because I recognize a bias that I have. And other times I can say, aha, I see it. Okay, I'm a champion and I'm advocating to correct that bias that I have. Okay. So nobody's guilty. Nobody's like a bad, you're a bad person because yeah. you're on one end, you're polar and you're always going to be bad. Yeah. It's that we all have these tendencies and being true and authentic to recognizing, okay, I, I, I recognize that that thing happened where mm-hmm. I got suspicious or frightened of a person that wasn't supposed to be in my neighborhood. Have, let's be transparent. People yeah. have done that, right? You're mm-hmm. on edge something that's not of your typical day-to-day pattern, right? True. You have yeah. to unlearn that. Unlearn. That's to, a great word. Yeah. Yeah. How do you unlearn so much? I mean, address the elephant in the room about how about an architecture? How do you unlearn level, that, those, those, those habits? habits. Um, let's start with the social before okay. we even get to the architecture. Okay. The, on the social side of it, do you have friends that are of various cultures and mm-hmm. diversities and backgrounds and identities even um, beyond men and women, you know, non-binary gender even. That's a whole new discussion that I'm yeah. getting more informed about. Personally, yes, because I'm so darn curious. But yeah. anyway. But that curiosity, yeah. let that curiosity yeah. grow into bigger understanding. Force yourself to have, if you don't have friends of that diverse range, encourage yourself to find and be inquisitive and get to know people that aren't like yourself. I've made that a challenge to myself. I I didn't have very many African-American friends five years ago. I intentionally sought to do that, to say, well, well, why don't I? And surprisingly, I have a lot more African-American friends, black friends right now. And I'm so thankful for that experience. I didn't just go and seek them out per se, but it naturally (laughs) occurred. But there's a lot of common goals that we are working towards that help get us there. So it's not just, I'm going to go pick a rainbow Skittles, okay. you know, of friends. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's that, what is your common core values? What are, what are the things that are, are, keep us together? But how do we celebrate our differences? How do we celebrate that we're not all the same? We, we never will be. Yeah. Right. It's, it sounds like you're doing this on a daily basis. It's it, not I hourly. Am. It's, is it, it's hourly. Okay. Yeah, I'm really, really, <laughs> it's constant. Okay. Right. Yeah, uh, it's t- it's, it's a exhausting. lot of inner work. I was going to say it's got it's a lot. That's a tremendous amount of inner work. In addition to your architecture design and and, and uh, running the uh, AIA in San Francisco, how do you personally kind of decompress from it and uh, you know balance it? I guess, um, for lack my of family, okay, they're, they're my core and my shield and my you know share with everything. us if you don't mind. You know, if you're at um, liberty, yeah. Yes, I have two daughters. They're in the tweens age right now. And they kind of ground me on, yes, I've, I've done all these things and I continue to do these things, but I'm still, to them, I'm still mom. And hey, mom, did you make, you know, did you uh, make my lunch or, you know, what are we having for breakfast tomorrow? Right. Yeah. That grounds me to the fact that I have this direct connection. You know, we talk about the lack of connection. Yeah. I thrive on trying to reconnect with them. Even though I am traveling a lot, I try to connect with them in that deep way. And that, you know, re-energizes me. Yeah. Yeah. And my husband as well. He's my anchor. We talk a lot about 
how you know we're trying to be the modern family and supporting <laughs> each other and careers and everything else. And he's been the ultimate champion. I wouldn't be able to do what I do without him acknowledging and supporting. Yeah. He that. definitely has to be really strong to work to be with you. Yes. for sure. <laughs> yeah. So you, yes. you, you you've got that strong minded. Yeah. Yeah, strong minded. Very good. I, I, if you don't, how? You had the, this question you sent to me as well as how do we inspire future generations? I mean, you've shared a lot yes. with this, but if you don't mind going into it again, how do we inspire future generations who are currently underrepresented identities and backgrounds to become architects and entrepreneurs? Let's touch back that when we come right back. And I'm going to restate that again. This is The Modern Architect on KZSU, Stanford, 90.1 FM. Do you have questions about three-day notices, 30-day notices, unlawful detainers, security deposits, pairs, habitability, lockouts, or rental agreements? Do you have other concerns about your housing rights? If you live in San Jose, call the Legal Aid Society of Santa Clara County at 408-998-5200 for free legal assistance. That's the Legal Aid Society of Santa Clara County, 408-998-5200. We're talking today with Rosa Shang, FAIA, love saying that, president of the AIA San Francisco and principal at Smith Group JJR in San Francisco. For more information, you can visit www.aiasf.site-ym.com. That's www.aiasf.site-ym.com. Rosa, I was a... before we went to our break, is how do we inspire future generations to be architects and entrepreneurs who uh, are currently underrepresented uh, identities and backgrounds? I mean, you shared with us, but uh, please yes. continue on that because it's uh, vital to the future. Yes. I support a lot of the people that are doing the day-to-day work, the difficult work. So there's a lot of groups out there. I'll just name some of them. Sure. Hip Hop Architecture by Michael Ford and the Urban Arts Collective. They create uh, summer camps that connect the divide between those that are normally not exposed to architecture or don't know its relevance or a profound impact potential. Mm-hmm. But he uh, marries it with hip hop as an interesting uh, mashup, if you will. Like, what does hip hop have to do with architecture? So he actually has this theory about some of the, the housing projects that went bad creating mm-hmm. resulted in hip hop music. Okay. Right? The yeah. desolate. I see it conditions yeah. of the blight or the the crime in the housing that was created by ironically by modern architecture of the time in Chicago and Detroit etc birthed hip hop so hip hop has a direct connection and if you listen to the words of hip hop songs they talk about the danger the streets the skepticism about their built environment so turning that on its head he has come up with a way to engage the vernacular of those that are underrepresented and something that they connect very intimately with to design and empowerment. So part of the exercise is to design buildings, but also they, they do a video where they come up with lyrics and it's a poetic thing, right? Where they're riffing and it's like a design iterative process and they're using words to describe empowerment and how design can actually change their future for the better. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So highly recommend that you um, look him up and also... His name again? is Michael Ford. Okay. There's also Brian Seeley Jr., who is the leader of uh, Colocate, uh, which is an advocacy group based in New Orleans. And he's doing a lot of work with the controversy over monuments and what the significance of the Civil War monuments and the, them being taken down and what 
do you put up in its place and how do you honor everyone, but also the histories of the people that were historically marginalized and put at risk and danger, right? So that whole exercise is a therapeutic kind of coming together, a reconciliation, facing the past, talking about the past, but a reconciliation of it. So he's doing amazing work. And then um, Tiffany Brown, who is part of Smith Group, actually, but aside from that, she is an African-American woman architect. There's only 0.5% architects that are African-American women, which is a devastating number. uh, Approximately 400, the number is growing, period, but... That's indicative of the compounding of gender issues along the lines of issues of race and racism, right? So she's directly trying to come up. She came up with a program called 400 Forward. What is it? 400 Forward? Forward, 400 Forward. And it alludes to that lack of women number, right? So programs for younger women, women of color to engage with architecture as a potential career choice and sponsoring and mentoring those people. So as at a base level, I'm not doing the direct work mm-hmm. on a daily basis at that mass level. I promote and amplify those people that are doing it. Yeah. Oh, and then also Deanna Van Buren, Designing Justice, Designing Spaces. She's locally here out of Oakland. I highly recommend you have her on the show okay. if you can get her you to s- carve out time. heard her first. Okay. Yes, but she's been on TED Women. Um, she talks about justice and restorative justice as her main work. And finding alternatives to prisons and our historical, you know, criminal justice systems. So restorative justice centers, circles, and also resources for communities that are underserved. So pop-up villages where instead of food trucks, it's, um, you know, libraries or um, medical clinics going to traveling to these underserved communities. Really? Yes. So she's done that locally at Hunter's Point. And I think... I think there's more coming, but absolutely amazing work. So I try to amplify their work so that yes. people recognize it more and know that it's a resource. Yes, because there's such brilliance within, especially the youth. Yes. There's such brilliance and in the inspiration, you were fortunate to be inspired, obviously, when you were 11 or even probably yes. earlier, but you were inspired. But these are actually programs that are going out, reaching out, taking an active role in that awareness uh, they're boots on the ground. Yeah, yeah. they're doing it yeah, on a presence, daily basis. They're, pre- they're ever present. Yeah. And there's more of them. Yeah, I could go on and on yeah. and I could provide a list for you as a follow-up. But we need to support these groups, whether it's a summer camp program that inspires somebody that would normally never think about architecture uh, yeah. to a bigger awareness that we all need to mentor. It's not just these people that are you know seen as saints, but we all have a part to <laughs> yeah. play. And I think I, I'm trying to do that too by actively mentoring, whether it's formal and informal mentoring of those of the younger generation to stay in architecture or to pick it as a career. Yeah. I I, uh, touch on that. (laughs) We don't want to just be seen as saints, but so much of what architects do is, uh, if you think about it, it may be as important and I'm sure I might get emails. (laughs) That's fine. But it may be as important in some ways as even uh, religious groups. Because you're affecting a person, each individual's soul, regardless of their mindset or their background. If you're designing space from the human experience outward, you're definitely affecting not only them as people, because we go back to uh, Jesse Crimes, is it? Yes. Uh, Jesse Crimes, and it's the walls. It's the walls. Because we're all in walls. Yes. Whether we're prisoners or not, we're actually prisoners in our own personal walls. Yes. Why do it in our physical world? 
Exactly. So you're doing a ton of work, a ton of work, <laughs> getting that message out there to as many as many people as possible, so that you don't have advocates. If I'm incorrect, help me, please, Rose. Uh, advocates, but you have people who who want to affect the change. Yes. And the behavior and unlearn. You said when was it? Just a little recently about that word unlearn. That is, you know, we go to school to learn. We do everything almost to learn, but we don't unlearn things. Yes. Absolutely. And it's interesting. Also, the other debate is that, well, if you do all this social focus stuff and get people to share what they think architecture should be, you're going to water down the design quality or the aesthetic outcome or the pursuit of precision and advancing the technology of architecture. And I say, really? BS. Yeah, okay. Right? Yeah. Say BS. Cause I know you say BS a lot. BS. <laughs> I mean, not a lot. Not no, I'm you... not going to say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, we... We see examples of the fact that they could coexist. And if anything, the resultant is that when you do listen and when the when you do take into consideration those ideas that haven't been heard, you come up with a more relevant, long-lasting result, right? So the building will not have to be torn down or, or reshaped or in 10 years mm-hmm. because it wasn't answering all the needs. In this mindfulness of blurring the lines between indoor and outdoor and taking into account that sustainability actually has to do with social sustainability as well as environmental sustainability mm-hmm. that if we're able to integrate and marry those things together we come up with a better product a better outcome you know for people that's more meaningful yeah you're definitely I was going to ask here and this is one of the questions we we bounced back and forth is that to communicate the value of architecture to the general public you've said that and more it's actually transcended just the general public you've gone into you know we've, we've even touched on some spiritual things yes what, do you have a favorite quote that you can think of or even if it's not exactly <laughs> i've given you many but i know but a re- like, what's a let's favorite out another one <laughs> yeah no because they're relevant because they they kind of move you yes i'll end with find a champion be a champion because we are the champions of the world. I know that's kind of cheesy in a sense because it alludes to a song by Queen. Yeah. No, but say but it again, tr- please. I want to hear that. Find or seek a champion. Be a champion. Because we are the champions of the world. Rosa, it's been an honor and pleasure having you on our show today. Thank, Thank you. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it very much. You're, we're Likewise. truly privileged. You've been listening to The Modern Architect. I'm Tom Dioro. Our guest today has been Rosa Shang, fellow of the American Institute of Architects, lead AP, Architect, thought leader, principal, and director of equality, diversity, and inclusion. Sorry, equity. <laughs> equity. Okay, thank you. Um, <laughs> that's great. Do not cut this. We want the realness of the show. And serves as the AIA San Francisco president, 2018, from the aesthetically minimal, highly technical development of the glass structure for Apple's original high-profile retail stores to the innovative and sustainable LEED Gold-certified Lori Loki Graduate School of Business at Mills College in Oakland, California. She is currently working on innovative and sustainable projects for the University of California, Davis. For more information, feel free to visit www.aiasf.site.com. Ym.com. That's www.aiasf.site-ym.com. Join us again next time when we welcome another outstanding architect, engineer, influencer, or civic leader committed to positive and sustainable cities, communities, and lives. 
The Modern Architect is recorded at Stanford University Studios in Palo Alto, California, and on site in the San Francisco Bay Area, and is a production of KZC Radio. Today, the recording engineer is Darlene Franklin, Chief Engineer Mark Lawrence, and we're all assisted by Caleb B. Smith. And the executive producer and host of The Modern Architect is Tom Diarro. If you wish to contact us, our email address is interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Again, that's interviews at kzsu.stanford.edu. Are you an architect, designer, contractor, or engineer? 
Modeler.com is a platform connecting architects and other specifiers with building product manufacturers. Modeler.com's engaged network of 168,000 architects, designers, and construction professionals use Modeler.com's tools to discover, discuss, and specify products appropriate for building projects. We at KZSU Stanford thank Modeler.com for the generous underwriting of the production and broadcasting costs of the modern architect.